Hello everyone and welcome to a very special episode of Diminishing Returns. We're having a week off this week due to personal circumstances and or laziness, but whichever one it is, you know your friends here at Diminishing Returns wouldn't leave you in the lurch. So we've put together an episode of Outtakes. Now typically a recording session for one of our episodes takes uh, anywhere from three to five hours, and the episodes end up being an hour, an hour and a half so, obviously, we have to cut a lot out. Uh, some of that is just as bullshitting. Uh, we go off on tangents a lot. Uh, we do tend to ramble sometimes. Uh, but some of it is decent material, but we just cut it out for length so that the episodes stay pacey. So, we've taken some of that stuff that's been edited out, and we're packaging it up together here and giving it to you. So first of all, we're going to go back to our Christmas episode, which was all about It's a Wonderful Life. Now, the eggnog was flowing quite freely. We were having a very good time. A lot of fun recording this one, uh, despite my best attempts to put a negative spin on everything in the film. But we started out with a little sketch. Uh, then we did our usual dissection of the film. And then Calvin pitched an idea that involved uh, Hellspawn, Margaret Thatcher Demon. So go back and check that episode out if you've missed it. It's a good one. Uh, in these extra clips, first of all, we're going to have a bit of Calvin warming up for his role as C-3PO in the sketch, uh, which we had a good laugh about. And then there's some sort of silliness before we even got started. Uh, like I said, we were in a silly mood. Um, we have some clips of a lot of Jimmy Stewart impressions. I mean, there were a lot in the episode. It's nothing compared to what we had to cut out. And then the final clips, just more stuff where I managed to get a negative spin on everything about It's a Wonderful Life. We actually cut some out, even though the entire episode was littered with them. Enjoy! <laughs> Sorry, I need to... Um, my name is C-3PO, Human Cyborg Relations. How might it serve you? I need to get it in... I need to do it and then I can... <laughs> again, again, that's... <clears throat> That's funny because it's really. True. I need to do that and then go straight into C3PO. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, hello, I'm C3PO, Human Cyborg Relations. How might I serve you? Greetings, Master Soul. No, oh, let me do no. that again. <clears throat> uh, C3PO, Human Cyborg. Greetings, Master Soul. Yes, R2. It is indeed. <laughs> that was my sad R2D2. <laughs> I'll tell you who else is Jewish. Jesus Christ, <laughs> our Lord and Saviour. Ah, he is. Yeah. Happy birthday, Jesus. 2016 today. No, this week. At the very start of... Okay, so for everyone, we're, we're, we're talking about It's a Wonderful Life today. The oh, yeah. uh, Frank Capra uh, 1946 Frank Christmas Frankincense Capra. Classic. <laughs> Yes, yes. Starring um, James Murrett. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> but yeah, because it's like the, the film, the film, uh, it's a wonderful. 
it's it's a wonderful life opens with um it's a very cold opening and we get a lot of guys um, it's in winter right it's yes. snowing it's a cold opening <laughs> what it's a cold opening because it's snowing oh right oh yes very good so um there's there's <laughs> What is it you want, Mary? You want the moon? That that whole bit. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Our, let's, if we're going to start doing James Stewart impressions, let's let's do it. That's my speciality. Should we? I was thinking about this. Should we? Should we assign a different Jimmy Stewart to each of us so that we we can tell the difference between the three of them? <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. Because <laughs> well, I, I, I can do. A... You want the moon? Is my is my go to bit. <laughs> My my go-to James Stewart impersonation bit is um, the bit when he's, uh, you know, it's a Bill's house and Mary's house. <laughs> it's it's, it's all your head. <laughs> it's just interesting how we all go to different points of him as the yeah, start of our... My, mine is, Merry Christmas, movie house! <laughs> <laughs> See, my, my problem is, my James Stewart, it, it really quickly descends into just guttural throat noises. Cause it's just <laughs> Stop pronouncing the words unless I concentrate. But yeah, I always go to, uh, what do you want, Mary? You want the moon? I'll just say the word, I'll throw a lasso on over and pull it out. Now. <laughs> what about rear, win- rear window, Calvin? Is that not your go-to? Grace, get out of there, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't all the was... then? <laughs> I I feel like all of ours go to sort of older and decrepit. Um, <laughs> well, he's just got that kind of tremolo in his voice. He does, doesn't he? Well, yeah, even when he was, uh, I assume, quite a young man, he kind of sounded like he was... It sounded like he'd been inhaling sand out in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> there, was one, there was one line that really jumped out at me. It kind of sums up the whole sort of setup, where he says... Mm. I couldn't face being cooped up in a shabby little office for the rest of my life. Um, (laughs) Your Jimmy Stewart sounds like Bane. (laughs) (laughs) It would be extremely painful. (laughs) I'm just reading the moon quote and I forgot how, like, weird it gets as it goes on. Oh, I made a note of that. Because, like, it's supposed to be, like, a romantic moment, but he says he's going to bring the moon down and make her eat it. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he does all this, you know, I'll throw a lasso around her and pull it down and all that, and that's fine, but I, I forgot that then he gets into all the, yeah, well, then, you, then you could swallow it, so, you know, it'll dissolve, so, you know, moving, like, shoot out your fingers and your toes and your hands and your hair. It's just weird. When they're in the bank, they've got a picture of the father, George Bailey's father, up there, and it's got a little plaque underneath. Well, I think it's a little bit of cross stitch, uh, with obviously like a little <laughs> motto, and it says, mm. "All you can take with you is that which you've given away." Can you tell me what that means? Mm. Because <laughs> it just sounds like a load of hippie bullshit to me. Yeah, I don't think that uh, stands up to it. Means any sort all of you can take reasoning. with you is all that you've given away. It, it, all these, it. <laughs> Wait a minute, no. I was going to say it me it means it means nothing, doesn't it? But then that's sort of counterproductive to the, what it it aims to say, I suppose. Uh, well, I, I assume the point of it is you you give things away and you get in return kind of more life enrichment, and then when you die, 
that will go with you oh. because you can't take it yes. with you as in money. I guess that one means, but it just it was just it annoyed me because it it just reminded me of those things that people <laughs> post on Facebook, uh, kind of uplifting like bullshit. Yeah, like over a <laughs> just... picture of a minion <laughs> misattributed to Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's nice to know that those sayings still manage to get into the public consciousness somehow, even before <laughs> social media. <laughs> I've got one more. This troubling implication okay. of the film. So right at the end, right, George has come back to real life, and he's running around. Merry Christmas, picture house. Um, he's running around the town. He's very happy. Merry Christmas, Emporium. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to get one in. I haven't done one yet. <laughs> he's running around, and and he gets home. And as he arrives home, the bank inspector, the DA is there, and the reporters are there. He knows they're waiting for him, but he gets there. And instead of being annoyed, he's like, oh, yeah, you're taking me to jail. Woohoo! Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so they're all there. And then his, his kids are upstairs. They're like in bed uh, or they're sort of peeking over the banister and looking a bit worried. And then the children sort of say, oh, yeah, your mother went out looking for you. And indeed she did. But this does mean that she left her four children, who were all under nine, and she just left them alone <laughs> in the house. And when she comes in, when she returns home, She's shocked to see the banking sector and the DA all there as well. So that means they arrived after she left and let themselves in to a house with just some four infant <laughs> children in there and just decided to wait. <laughs> Does that seem uh, wrong too? Um, Is that okay yeah, in the Yeah, it was forest? a different time. <laughs> it's a different time. Uh, I guess. But she didn't even like uh, tell the neighbours to look, look after him or anything. Like, they just left these kids on their own. <laughs> On Christmas Eve, when their dad's just had an a, a anger fit and run away. <laughs> well now, wasn't that hilarious? Right, next up, we've got a discussion about a matter close to all film fans' hearts, IMDb. Now, if anybody doesn't know what IMDb is, that's the Internet Movie Database. It's a website that's just a giant repository for all film information and a general encyclopedia for anyone who's interested in films. In fact, if you don't know what it is, then you probably shouldn't be listening to a film podcast. I mean, even my mother uses it, for God's sake. So this clip is a discussion about something that always bothered me about IMDb. Okay, um, just before we get into the pictures, I want to use It's a Wonderful Life as an excuse to talk about something that annoys me. And it's the IMDb trivia section. <laughs> now, right. <laughs> I love a bit of trivia, and I'll read the trivia for films. Um... What I don't like about the IMDb trivia s- section is it's complete uh, unchecked um, <laughs> and unsighted, unreferenced nature. Yeah. There's so much, and It's a Wonderful Life's a good example of this, and it jumped out in particular because obviously it's a well-known film, so there's a lot of information about it. But also it was made a long time ago, so there's a lot of obvious not true stories about it that people just seem to accept. <laughs> um and then also because it's a very popular film, there's a lot of shit that people just put on there that is not interesting whatsoever, and yet they seem to think it is. Mm. Um, <laughs> what are your experiences I, I with do, the IMDb trivia section? Well, I, I, my my favourite bit of IMDb trivia, I imagine it's been removed now, I think it was um, for Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, but it essentially said something along the lines of... Michael Sarah had to film all of his scenes with uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead separately 
in a different room because he was scared to hold hands with her. And uh, mm. <laughs> it's obviously, <laughs> obviously not true. <laughs> Could but, be. Um... <laughs> so I'm going to give you some examples, okay? So here's one. Here's... Mm. And bear in mind that 100 out of 101 people found this interesting, okay? So that's the sort of people we're doing. <laughs> Frank Capra estimated the film would be shot within 90 days. He was right, and the whole cast and crew threw a party to celebrate. But that's the end of it. The, the, so they, they 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 stuck to schedule and had a rap party. Yes. And that's the that's the trivia. The, the trivia points I really really hate on IMDb. Like if they put this film is a sequel to another film, or this film won the award for thingy and was you know nominated for best. It's like yeah, and there's there's sections on IMDb specifically for like what film it's a sequel to, and specifically for what film it yeah. won, you know, what awards it won. And I hate when people <laughs> just go on the trivia and just ah. Uh. For me, the trivia should just be Dennis Hopper read for the part of X Y Z. Oh, I'll tell you what, that annoys me as well. Where it says, oh, so and so was considered for this part, so and so was considered for this part. It's like. This is a major Hollywood film, all right, with a male lead. Every male actor from 25 to 40 was considered for the part, yeah. okay? Like, <laughs> if they actually auditioned for it or they were going to do it and then had to pull out or something, fair enough. But don't tell me that the producers wrote their name on a list because it's not interesting. And I'm not going to go, oh, I wonder what they would have been like in that part. Uh, see, I find it's not I, relevant. I like doing that. I like going, <laughs> oh, yeah, that would have been interesting. Yeah, like, if it, was, if it was a realistic concept, yes, but obviously it wasn't. Being considered for the part means they ne- probably never even contacted them, or they did, and they went, well, no, I'm not doing it. Hey, Alan, it's just... <laughs> apparently Vincent Price was considered for the part of Mr. Potter, and uh, 50, exactly. 50 or 55 <laughs> people found this interesting. <laughs> well, let's assume that's true. <laughs> but how many other people were considered for the role of Mr. Potter? Every actor over <laughs> 55. That's how many. Olivia de Havilland was uh, considered for the role of Mary Bailey, as was Martha Scott, as was Anne Dvarak. Ginger Rogers allegedly turned down the role. See if this is something that you, you can't do without. Twinkle Twinkle Little Star plays in most of Clarence's scenes. It plays five times overall. <laughs> 36 out of 38 people found it. <gasps> Frank Capra considered I mean... casting Robert Mitchum as Bert the Cop. <laughs> How many people find that uh, interesting? Um, uh, 18 people out of 24 find that interesting. See, oh. IMD have tried to solve this problem by by doing this, found this interesting thing, and it kind of ranks them in terms of how interesting they are, which means that the further you go down oh, the page, okay. the more bullshittery you get. Uh, so that's where the, the good stuff <laughs> is. Let's look at the least, right, the least interesting one. Is oh brilliant, Carl okay, yeah. Switzer, aka Alfafa from MGM's Our Gang Little Rascals series, makes a cameo in this movie in the dance scene. That's oh. kind of interesting, but even that's annoying because, like, just look at the cast. Oh, there's a cast brought... list on IMDb. That gets brought up in the Tom Bosley yeah. making of. He's the guy who he's the guy who makes the the floor open for the swimming pool. Oh, uh, yeah. the. the uh, the second, uh, the second and third least interesting are complete horseshit, though. Harry Bailey was born in 1911. Billy mm. Bailey was born in 1872. <laughs> Great. Mm. Clarence Oddbody was born in May 1693. <laughs> mm. George says holy mackerel three times. 
<laughs> Clarence looks smaller than the other stars, probably because he doesn't have his wings yet. That's not even trivia, no, that's, that's just pure conjecture, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm just on it now, and I've just found one, and you guys can tell, because I can't imagine that this is true. It says, the name Henry F. Potter is used for the first time dramatically on film in this picture. The surname of Potter would be used in eight additional film-slash-television productions. Female characters known as Mrs. Potter will appear in six different television-slash-movie productions. The most famous Potter is Harry from the series by J.K. Rowling. Another famous Potter is Colonel Sherman Potter, commanding officer and surgeon of the 4077th um, Legion in the TV series MASH. The television show The Prisoner oh and the movie The Mean Machine have characters in the cast what named Potter. Sado. What the what fuck is that about? Exactly. What's the effort of writing what that? sad person <laughs> sat there writing that out? Well, presumably it. someone called Potter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then eight people out of 38 yeah, found well, that interesting. 22 people found it interesting that George smokes a cigarette, a cigar, and a pipe in the film. <laughs> You know, it's been a while since I've been on the IMDb trivia pages. It looks like they've gone to absolute... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure they're just... usually a bit more interesting than this, I must say. And a, a lot of it is like cut and paste from the Wikipedia articles, which uh, uh... at least have some kind of referencing guidelines. But there's also stuff on here which is just like, that's obviously not true. It's like it's obviously like a story that's been handed down and, and people think mm. it's true. It's just, it just doesn't quite hang together. The iconic scene where James Stewart's character runs through a snow-swept Bedford Falls was actually filmed on a scorching July day. It's night, isn't it? Let's see. Hmm. The top the top rated bit of trivia. For the scene yeah. that required Donna Reed to throw a rock into the window of the Granville house, Frank Capra hired a marksman to shoot it out for her on cue. To everyone's amazement, Donna Reed broke the window with true aim and heft without the assistance of the hired marksman. Mm. Reed had played baseball in high school and had a strong throwing arm. Oh, that sounds like bullshit. Because yeah, that marksman was probably there, probably waited to see if the rock hit before he took the shot. Yeah. Not worried about the timing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> what a load of shite. Right, next we're going to move on to a new episode. It is Unbreakable, which was part one of our M. Night Shyamalan trilogy. We went through the entire Shyamalan filmography over a course of three episodes. It's worth going back and checking out if you're uh, interested in Shyamalan's work, because it's a real um, up-and-down journey on his career. It's a very interesting one to go through them all. Uh, so here's some clips from the first episode. first couple of clips there are going to highlight... You may have noticed Saul's got a bit of a predilection towards pedantry, particularly in this case towards the Sixth Sense. And then he has some complaints about Stuart Little, which Shyamalan wrote. And then finally, we have a good old discussion about the career of Bruce Willis. Just, just quickly before I've just got to get it out. I've got a list of things that did the uh, the same twist as the Sixth Sense before the Sixth Sense. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Twilight Zone episode thirty four nineteen <laughs> Star Trek original series. <laughs> uh, there were two Twilight Zone episodes actually. One in nineteen sixty. One in nineteen sixty two. Yep. An uh, no, there's of a the film scary called. Door. <laughs> there's a film. <laughs> There's a film called Carnival of Souls from 1962, which I'd like to mention because it's a really great 
film. That's basically why I want to bring great it up. Title. It's a great title. I've I, I've spoiled the uh, the ending purely by <laughs> telling you it's the same thing as the Sixth Sense, but it's it's a really great little horror film. It's the exact same thing, but it is a horror film from the sixties. It's you know a woman survives a car crash and then she's haunted by ghouls and runs around a, an old haunted carnival and stuff, and it's it's great. Mm. Um, there was also Doctor Terror's House of Horrors. Uh, and the 1998 remake of Carnival of Souls, mm. which is quite interesting that that film got remade the year before The Sixth Sense came out. <laughs> um, but then also, are you familiar with... Um, there's an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? The uh, the kids show oh. that, Calvin, you might have watched some of Yes, this. yes, uh, yeah. Um, it's called The Tale of the Dream Girl, huh. and it is alleged that M. Night Shyamalan actually watched that and based a lot of the sixth sense on it Mm. um i i haven't seen the episode but i mean there's a lot of write-ups and things where i think he's mentioned taking inspiration from it or something and apparently it's very similar in ways um it certainly has the oh they were dead all along twist at the end that's interesting yeah <laughs> Stuart Little's a piece of shit, isn't it? Oh. I, I, oh, do you like it? Oh, I haven't seen it in years. I remember it being fine. I watched it as a kid and I hated it. Oh. I thought this is this is offensive to children. It's talking down to me. Oh, wow. It doesn't make any sense. Oh. Why can the mouse oh, why can gosh, the mouse be understood by the humans and the mouse can talk to the cat but the cat can't be understood by humans? What the fuck's that all about? Do you hear that, Alan? Bullshit. Alan, do you hear that? I think it's the sirens of the logic police. I think the logic police <laughs> just arrived on the podcast. <laughs> Well, you know, Stuart Little ha- is multilingual, the cat isn't, and the parents aren't either. No, but it's it's like on a species basis. All oh, the yeah. mice are... But it's, it goes beyond that. All the mice, like, drive cars and little have little mouse clothes and suitcases and... Is there a mouse with, like, an Italian accent? <laughs> like, runs a mouse, like, patisserie or something. <laughs> it's the cat voiced by Nathan Lane. <laughs> yes! Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I thought, okay. Stuart, um... Isn't Hugh Laurie? Stuart Little is notable. Yes. Yeah, I was about to say, Gina it's notable because it's kind of Hugh Laurie's, um... Yeah. Foot in the door to America. It's kind of... Yeah. I'm pretty sure that, that was, you know, his first bit of breaking America. And obviously he's now a big American TV star. Yeah. <laughs> Can I make a quick sidebar here and talk about yeah. Bruce Willis's career? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Because I think, well, in Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, which came kind of quickly off the heels of each other, Mm. and they're very similar in terms of his performance. He's very stoic, very quiet, the sort of strong, silent type. And I think this came along at just the right time for him. I I don't know if he he did it consciously or anything like that, but he was in his mid-40s, that kind of action hero uh, period was probably starting to leave him behind a little bit. The hair was going, and... It was, uh, I think. A nice oh, that little... was that was so noticeable at times in the sixth sense. <laughs> oh, his little like his little toupee tuft on, on top. Of... Yeah, there were some <laughs> shots where like you could see his skull like all the way up to the top, but then there was like a bit of hair down covering his eye. Like, oh, it just looked ridiculous. So yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. You know, 
Bruce Willis was someone who kind of hit fame a little bit later in life. You know, Die Hard, he was in his mid-30s. Well, you know, early yeah. 30s maybe when that happened. He was well, a bit of a, a TV rare... star, but he kind of... I was going to say, he's a rare instance of... Um a TV star making their way into film before mm. that was the norm. Obviously, everyone does that nowadays, but back when Die Hard came out, that wasn't particularly normal. You either were a film star or mm. a TV star, and it was quite difficult to make it, the it, jump from... I mean, that says a lot. Yeah. I'm sure we'll do this uh, an episode one day, but that says a lot about the way Die Hard was made as well, that it kind of was... He was like the bottom of the barrel choice for that part and ended up making him a star. Mm. Yeah. He's seen as one of the Sylvester Stallones and Arnold Schwarzeneggers now, but he was cast in Die Hard because he was the guy from Moonlighting, and he was an everyman, and he wasn't a big action yeah. star. And and Die Hard triggered that change from the kind of eighties Superman to the ordinary guy who has to become a hero, and and we see a lot more of that as we go along, like Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon, that that kind of thing. Um, not to get into that too much, because we'll we'll end up talking about that on the Die Hard episode at some point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like so then by the time we got to this period, Bruce Willis has had 10 years as a kind of action hero. He's getting to an age where that's not going to sustain him forever. And suddenly we get this kind of nice little emotional drama that mm. he probably did under duress, or at least he did. It sounds like he did it as an obligation rather than as a kind of really, oh, I'll look yeah. script, I'll do it. I think Bruce Willis is one of those people who's kind of had quite a lucky career. They just sort of dropped into oh, the right yeah. place at the right time. I mm. I really like Bruce Willis, but like you say, I, I don't know how much of that is down to like you know. I think he's cast well <laughs> more often yeah. than not, and he gets lucky with parts. I, I in fact, when I was younger, I um, just out of interest, I uh, totted up all of the the act like lead actors in my uh, DVD collection to see if I had a a sort of favourite actor without realising. And I was expecting it to be someone like Jim Carrey or, you know, a, a comic actor. But Bruce Willis was the most um, prolific actor in my collection, huh. as it turned out. I'm not quite sure how or why. Yeah, because you're not exactly a big, like, sort of action movie fan either, really, are you? No, I mean, I, I had the Die Hard film, so I suppose that's... that's I'm, I think I had the fourth one at that point, so that that's four. And he made a cameo in Loaded Weapon, uh, which mm. also starred Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I can't think what else he'll have... Oh, Beavis and Butthead do America. Uh, Fifth Element. No, I didn't have that one. Oh, Death Becomes Her. But he, he does have a good sense of humour that kind of... I mean, I don't know how much of it he's actually he actually finds funny or how much of it is just he's cast in a comedy that comes out mm. quite well. But he, he's an odd one, Bruce Willis, because I, I do like him a lot. And I like a lot of his films, but you you hear him talk about the likes of, you know, how they should approach the next Die Hard sequel and things like that. And it, it does often sound like he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Like I say, I think The Sixth Sense and The Unbreakable came along just... And perhaps perhaps it was these films that kind of convinced him that he wasn't just an action star, he was a legitimate actor as well. And yeah. and, and and so it kind of his ego ran rampant after that, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> The whole nine yards was in two thousand. That was, I mean, was that his first like proper lead role in a in a, a legitimate comedy? He was in Death Becomes Her. But he's, yeah, but he's just the kind of punky guy, isn't he? He's not like a. Oh no! No, it's a it's, it's a good comedy performance from him in oh, Death yeah. Becomes Her. Actually, he's, he's uh, I mean, he, he came from playing like, you know, against he was, time. He was on a sitcom essentially. He was, you know, a mm. romantic yeah. comedy TV show. Mm. So no, in Death Becomes Her, he's like a, a milk toast undertaker. 
he was really put upon by the women in his life. Um, mm. So very different performance. But the whole point was that he was supposed to be playing against type at that point. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it works well. I think he is one of the stronger parts of that film, yeah. quite frankly. Yeah. I think he has been fairly smart with um, making sure to remind us that he does comedy constantly. You know, he, he famously um, had his guest appearance in Friends. Mm-hmm. I think he might have won an Emmy for that role, you know? Mm. I might be yeah, but they give them out there, like confetti, don't they? <laughs> no, I know, but it, 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 was a, it was a guest appearance. The that fact that there is an award for best to. guest appearance in, the, yeah, in a sitcom yeah. is like, fuck off. <laughs> I find it interesting that he wasn't nominated for an Academy Award for either Sixth Sense or Unbreakable, um, considering they're very strong performances, but Sixth Sense, obviously, um, Hallie Joel Osment got nominated, uh, Tony Collette got nominated. Does feel like... I didn't... They might, yeah. I didn't feel like he was that amazing in The Sixth Sense, re Yeah, he's just it. doing... Like, say, so I was watching it as a fan of Bruce Willis looking for this performance, and he, he kind of just... You know, he was there and it was functional, but hearing that he was just, you know, doing it out of obligation makes a lot of sense. Mm. It feels like he's not really that invested in it. But but he's just doing that strong, silent type. I don't think he does, like, major emotion. Like, Tony Collette breaks down into tears. You can't see Bruce Willis being able to to kind of handle that. Mm. Mm. I thought Hayley Joel Osment was excellent, though. I really like... Oh, like yeah. Like, as child yeah. actors go, I think that's where you want to be. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. Well, that's that's something I want to mention about this as well. I, I think the, the, the child actor in Unbreakable is pretty bloody good. Um, I think M. Night does a great job of mm. um, working with children. It, it's quite yeah. remarkable because they, they are so often the weak link of film. Yeah. And yet, the like I say, the child actor in Unbreakable, I think, is... Fantastic! I think he conveys a lot of very sincere emotion, and and then going back to Bruce Willis's performance, the reason that I do think he does some pretty good acting in this film is his um, his relationship with his son is so perfectly played. It's it's so kind of believable that he is this, like you say, strong, silent type. But then his son does bring out these little glimpses of, you know, the fun side of him and the the kind of emotional state of him. And it, you do just get these very nicely played moments. Mm. Um, like I say, going back to that sequence where he realises how much weight he can carry, I think that's a great... You, you kind of see, you know, in his eyes this idea of like, yeah, all right, let's keep going with this. You know, I, I'm, I'm a bit annoyed with my son, but it's going to be a nice sort of bonding exercise and I'm intrigued to know what my limits mm. actually are now my son's brought this out in me and you know the, the other scene that springs to mind is the one where the where his son pulls a gun on him mm. and you know is which is kind of the natural progression of that because yeah when he, in that weightlifting scene he's going you shouldn't have done that oh let's yeah. have, let's see what else we can do because he's pushing himself and then so the the gun scene is very much him kind of reaping yeah. the reward of that that the date that having introduced this idea of that pushing yourself is okay to the son, he's then taken it too far. And so that makes him question his motivation for doing this. Should Mm. he push himself any further because it causes problems? It it works. I do think it would be interesting to know what would have happened if that bullet had been fired. Because you do get the impression that by the end of the film, the world is set so that he would have survived and the bullet wouldn't have killed him, which is bordering on ludicrous and I, I think it was very you know uh it's to the film's credit that they don't go that far with it you, you know you never quite see the extent of the the train wreckage at the start 
you're just told that there were no other survivors and that is in fact you're told there were two survivors and the other ones just died <laughs> it's yeah but if it had been a water pistol then god he'd have been <laughs> curled up on the floor dying within seconds that's sort of that's sort of like if, if they, like the ne- if they did make the next uh, the next film then the villain would have to be like a firefighter or something or someone who just has access Aquaman. to a big hose <laughs> Well, maybe that will come up in our pictures that we are about to do. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, um, fuck it, I'm throwing that into mine. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that extra clip on Bruce Willis there. You might call it a Brucey bonus. <laughs> anyway, next we moved on to the end of our Shyamalanathon, in which we looked at the back end of the director's career. Uh, so here are some clips in which we talk about some of the odder moments in The Happening, one of the worst films ever made. Then we get a little insight into Calvin's sixth sense of humour, which is starting to rear its ugly head more and more often. And then a discussion on the shit acting of both Dev Patel and Jaden Smith. And finally, the hilarity that comes with childish words for homosexual. Classic. The trouble with all that scene is that they they try and encounter they encounter these people who have holed up in a house and and the people won't let them in and then they end up shooting them. And obviously that's all about the panic that people are scared and they're just they're panicking and and being crazy. The problem with that is that that's not what the film is about. This isn't a film about post-apocalyptic scenario where yeah, people are going yeah. crazy. And so it doesn't fit. They establish these two characters who then just get shot and killed just like that. And yeah, and 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 before they get shot. Mark Warburg tries to prove that they're just a normal group of people by bursting into song inexplicably. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> hey, we're normal! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forget what song it is he sings, but he just goes, we're normal, we're normal! And then he starts singing. <laughs> which is like, well that's going to have the exact opposite <laughs> impression. If if I was worried about crazy people like coming in and attacking me and I was holed up in my house and someone was on the front porch outside going, we're normal, we're normal, I might be like, okay. But if they went, we're normal, we're normal, daisy, daisy, I'd be like, right, shooting them. I thought you were going to pitch a Calvin-style joke there where, like, a mother, a mother, like, runs to save her her <laughs> infant child, but then the infant child cuts its neck open with a <laughs> a, a, a blunt, broken it, CD or something. It, it has like a, a a baby bottle and it smashes it, and then it like stabs <laughs> itself with the glass. It hangs itself on its um, <laughs> air, what they called aerial mobile. thing, mobile. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, that's really funny. He does like find that funny. I don't think I've ever seen uh, that in a film, but that would. You said that as a joke, Sol, but he actually found that funny. (laughs) (laughs) If if any of you listening at home can think of an amusing infant suicide (laughs) method, uh, (laughs) comment on this episode. Tweet at us. um, Hashtag amusing baby suicide. Amusing baby suicide. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. Okay. Um, it's fine because babies can't actually really commit suicide. I wanted to say I I I forgot Dev Patel existed. <laughs> <laughs> it like his career 
blossomed out of nowhere, and then it seems like this film killed it as soon as it got going. Um, you obviously haven't seen The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, in which he's wonderful. I've only seen him in this and Slumdog Millionaire. I don't think he's very good. Oh. In Slumdog Millionaire, I thought he was pretty crap. I, I think he got award recognition because he was in a good film. I always feel bad for him because I don't think he's a good actor, but it always feels like he's really trying. It's really yeah, genuinely yeah, trying. And that's so the he thing. seems like a nice that's, guy. That's why it felt embarrassing because it <laughs> seemed like he was... A lot of these, mostly actors in this, were just like going through the motions, it felt like. It seemed like he was really giving it his all and everything about his performance was just bad. Even the accent. He couldn't even do the accent. <laughs> he was in he was in Chappie as well. That was the other big sort of thing oh, recently. Oh, I forgot about that. I've seen Chappie. He's alright in that. He gets away with it there. So at the start I wrote down what the fuck is this accent? And I just thought that was how Jaden Smith spoke. I like that though, because everyone's doing it, yeah. Well that's it, then other actors came in and they were all talking like Hello, what is going on? It was like a weird <laughs> South African. There was definitely Texan, a bit of Jamaican. In there. there was a bit of British, a bit of Jamaican. What really annoyed me with that actually is that yeah, great, all have this fictional accent, but all the actors were doing different fictional accents. <laughs> That's like right. Will Smith was kind of like this, but every now and then he'd go British. And Jaden Smith was like he was from Texas, but again, he'd kind of go British every now and then. But that, all the other guys were like, I'm South African, but I'm also like Jamaican. And it was, <laughs> it was just all over the place. <laughs> yeah. I like that. It's futuristic, isn't it? We don't know what the accents will be like in the future. Well, if they're all meant to have different accents and they've been put together, yeah. If they're all meant to have the same accent, roughly, then... No. They didn't execute the idea very well. <laughs> as as a British audience member, did either of you find the uh, repeated use of the word bender a bit funny? Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Weird. Yeah. Just, yeah. just constant, you're a bender. I knew you were a bender. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah for, those of, for, so, for those of you outside of Britain, I guess, bender is a sort of affectionate term for homosexual so. affectionate <laughs> it's fairly affectionate it's i mean as slang terms for gay go i mean it's it's a slur but it's a light one that you might pull out on a yeah it's the, it's what we said when we were 12 yeah but i mean some of that was said with legitimate malice on the playground well maybe for you so but i've had no problem with the gays and never have so i okay <laughs> <laughs> sorry that you you're a homophobe but you know don't tower us all with that brush. Oh, this is getting cut. <laughs> <laughs> you bender. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, that was a sensible grown-up discussion, wasn't it? And if you like straight people talking about homosexuals, then keep listening as we discover which male celebrity Sol would like to get buggered by. Because we're now moving on to our episode all about Fifty Shades of Grey. This was a really interesting episode for us. We all pretty much hated the film, but it did ignite some great conversation. And a lot of us revealing perhaps more personal things than we should, considering our mothers listen to the show. So coming up in these next clips, first of all, of course, we challenge Sol's masculinity. Then I try and find some meaning in the shallow superficiality of the first film. And then finally, we try and crack Calvin's repressed exterior. But first, 
If anyone can tell what the hell Sol is trying to say here, please let us know at facebook.com forward slash diminishing returns podcast. You know what I found odd when I was watching it? Is um, it dawns on me that Fifty Shades of Grey is a pun in America. Is it? Like, it's not over here, but because they spell it wrong, <laughs> the title <laughs> becomes this kind of Grey's Anatomy kind of pun over there. <laughs> like, it doesn't mean anything, but oh. neither does Grey's Anatomy particularly. It's just like. Hmm. I don't get it's it. It's just a book. I don't, well, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't get it. How was it a pun? What's well, the pun? Well, because. Because it's about shades of a colour, but they spell the colour grey differently. So it becomes just a pun like, well, his name is... It'd be like calling, I don't know, what what is a colour that's a name other than grey? Orange. Yeah, but if he was called Christian Orange, then that'd be Fifty Shades (laughs) of Orange, yeah. I'm not sure... Isn't that just the... But but if it was spelled orange, if the name was spelled orange, O-R-R-A-N-G-H-E... And then the book was called Fifty Shades of Orange, but orange was spelled O R R A N G. Still, that still looks like a pun. What are you all about? Like, it's is 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 like to say Fifty Shades of something like a phrase in America. Like, is that a? She's not even American. No, but shades referring to a color. I know she's not American. I'm saying it's inadvertently been what? turned into a weird pun in America, I and I bet. But it's not a pun. Thought, but he said the phrase, and he says it in the film, he says, I'm Fifty Shades of Fucked Up. And that's what it means. It oh, just God, means that's a terrible line. line. 50 it's shades. horrible. <laughs> Fifty Shades of something, it just means like the whole spectrum of it, right? But he's hmm. Fifty Shades of Grey, so it's an analysis of him. But then the colour element is, I don't know, it's not really Cause a Because it, it's a pun on the colour, because it's like, oh, it's like shades of a colour. Yeah. Oh, it's I don't know shades of this man. I do feel like you you go for a certain type of. <laughs> I was going to say cherub like that's not right. Um, <laughs> what me? You go for a certain sort of Twinkie kind of vibe, right? <laughs> I don't know if that necessarily reflects what the average woman finds attractive. I I don't know. I still I still don't buy. <laughs> I don't buy that he's that attractive a man. He just looks so weird. Do you just feel so desperate to assert your own masculinity that you can't accept that another man is attractive, Sol? Is that what this is? Who would you say is an attractive man? Oh, I don't know. Um, like Daniel George, Craig? George Clooney? Um, Brad okay, Pitt? Then. Oh, the old classics? Yeah. Say not. Which one, yeah, which they're one? fine. They're just like, you know, I'm sure like, if you asked any mother in the country, they'd probably say the same thing. George Clooney's got a good personality, though. I'm sure Jamie Jamie Dornan does. Jamie Dornan. Dornan. Oh, he's Irish. It doesn't doesn't come across very much, does it? George Clooney's got a natural charisma that just kind of whisks you off your feet when you're watching him. We're not worrying about about him taking out for dinner, right? So who would you want to give you a good hard scene to? (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing. I'd be worried that... um, Oh, that's a pivot. I, well, no, I just, I'd be worried that Mr. Grey would, like, snap his penis or something. He just seems a bit <laughs> brittle and, like... <laughs> he doesn't seem like someone who'd be able to, like you say, kind of, you know, give you a good hard... <laughs> well, yeah, we pounding. certainly don't see any of that. I mean, yeah, he just... He doesn't really give it to her even rough, does it? It's not... No. Oh, yeah, and then, you know, the interview... Because that's from the interview at the start. 
yes. after that interview at the start, I didn't realise that was meant to be sexual or, like, sexy <laughs> until afterwards. She runs outside into the rain and kind of goes, <gasps> and, like, cools off. Cleanses and I was like, off. wait, what? That was meant to be, like, there was meant to be sexual tension there? Because it was just mm. like, it was just like you were watching the most... <laughs> it was just tension. Just, just an interview, you know? <laughs> there was nothing... I'll tell you why that scene doesn't work for me, and it's the first time that those two meet each other in the film. Like, I can kind of see why she would fall for him. He's very rich, successful, good-looking. I don't know why he immediately falls for her. Like, when he has all these other beautiful women working for him, like, in his office, and, you know, he's this billionaire. He's, he could probably get any woman he wants. She's she cuts through the shit, doesn't she? Oh, yeah, She's yeah. not a yes man like everyone else. I think I, c- I can answer this one for you, Calvin, because it's exactly the same reason I find that sort of girl attractive. It's because you immediately go, <laughs> "I can dominate this girl." <laughs> like, you, know, <laughs> you, you you spot. It's not about you spot elements of the personality and the way they behave, the way they dress, the way you know the way you present yourself says a lot about your personality, and so. Mm. That's what you're looking for. It's not just about looks. It's not about like, oh, I find that face attractive. She's got a nice ass. Things like that. He immediately senses that she's unsure of herself and she's shy and not confident. And you can take advantage of that. And it doesn't really play out because he's then turns out not to be that dominant. Um, Mm. (laughs) But again, like I say, this is probably more realistic portrayal of a relationship than you will see in any film. Because it's flawed. Mm. Because they do things wrong. Because they think they're one thing and they're actually another. I haven't quite figured that out yet because they're inexperienced. You are really giving me a new appreciation of the film, Alan. Uh. <laughs> well, that was it. Like, I, I kind of originally came out of it thinking, nah, it's just, just, that was shit, that bit didn't work. But if you see it from a position of they are flawed because they're people, then it's more realistic than you would normally see in films. Hmm. Who's the richest person you've ever met? And uh, do you think you had a chance of shagging them? <laughs> um... <laughs> I talked to Matt Lucas on Tinder once. Uh, <laughs> I think I think you definitely had a chance there, Calvin. Mm, yeah. You don't like the fatties, do you, Calvin? <laughs> Can't be doing with that. Oh. <laughs> uh, who's the richest so, person you've ever met, Alan? Why are you so Alan? repressed, Calvin? What's wrong with you? I'm not repressed! <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, don't you eat, like, fish and milk? Like once a week, Calvin. That's a clear, what does that have to do with repression? <laughs> Out of our house in uh, in university, I'd say you were probably the most repressed. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Can we just rewind and just you know think about who was having the most sex in that house while we lived there? Remember, remember that time, Calvin, when you um, <laughs> when you brought someone back and then you couldn't. <laughs> You couldn't do it because you kept thinking of me. You know what? I did that. I did that the other day. Um, I went, no, not not you, Sol, but someone Aww. from. But it was just this guy, and then some. And someone from work, like, just popped into my. You know, it was like when you're looking at someone, and then their face just becomes someone else's face. It, um, it does happen. <laughs> oh god. What's that I hear you cry? You want more sex talk? All right, then. Here are some final outtakes from that Fifty Shades of Grey episode. And if you'd want to listen to the whole thing, you can find it by searching for Diminishing Returns on SoundCloud, or you can get us on iTunes. It's episode 36, by the way, if you're looking. But right now, here is us talking about some sexy stationery. Then Sol gets a little overzealous in negging Calvin. 
and finally more sex talk as we reminisce about our previous experience with each other's bedroom shenanigans. Um, so, uh, in the film, she um, there's a very unsubtle symbolism when she uh, ah. she picks up one of his pencils and uh, oh. starts kind of putting it around her mouth and stuff. Don't um, you just hate that? Like, now, I hated that so now, much. What, well, what really bugged me is, like, as if this guy uses a pencil. <laughs> what? As if this guy hasn't got, like, a thousand dollar pen that he, <laughs> you know... Well, he gave her the pencil to make her feel... Nothing about that flash businessman kind of guy screams, oh yeah, he's got pencils, and you know what, he's so <laughs> he's so uh, wealthy, he's even got pencils printed with his name on it. Like, Frank <laughs> Grimes had fucking pencils with his name on it. It's not... <laughs> of all the things to get upset about. <laughs> <laughs> She should have taken the pencil and shoved it up his ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if it had you, been you a can pen. barely feel a pencil. Come on, guys. <laughs> when he when he turns up in the uh, in the club, he just seemed like someone who'd read that book, The Game. Um, <laughs> are you familiar with that, Calvin? You might not no. be. I, uh, I'm sure Alan's very familiar, but um, don't say that like it's... I follow these things. <laughs> I play my own game. I play by my own. The rules. game is a book written by a uh, wanker. What, what are they pickup artists? Is that what they call themselves? <laughs> by a twat. Oh, it, 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 yeah. It, it's a book about like how to psychologically manipulate women in order to like have sex with them and. Mm. Um, I've never read it myself, but uh, it, it, my understanding is it has things in it like negging, if you're familiar with that concept. No. Uh, so that is where I would look at you and sort of say, um, oh, uh, I, I think you're, uh, I find fucked up teeth really cute, actually. They're a real turn on for me. <laughs> I'm having them fixed. It's because of people like you that I'm spending all this money having them done. You know that. <laughs> I know that's why I'm allowed to make fun. <laughs> no, but but you know what I mean. It's it's way. <laughs> it's, that that's that's what the concept is. You sort of you sort of you pay someone a backhand. Else. You could have picked my beautiful hazel eyes or my. You know, no, lovely, because, lovely no, nose. Because it, no, it has to be something. You have to like insult it, oh. pretend you're complimenting them. Oh, I thought you were just being a dick. All right, I get no, it. no, no. Yeah. You have to, you have to kind of, you know, you have to kind of go like, oh, uh, you know, you, you've got really nice um, eyes because because normally. You know that color eye doesn't look right, but I uh, see. I can't even do it. I, I'm not. Well, even I'll give you an it. example. I love. Say, I love say... Steve Merchant's anecdote of when he, he tried to do it on a woman once, and he just said something like, "Your ears are too big for your head." A simple example is you would say, I, oh, "I don't normally like girls with glasses, but they look really nice on you." Like that sort of thing. So ah, you're, sort of, you're sort of mm. saying you're wearing glasses. Oh, so you've practiced that one. Oh, but I don't know. I think that's a bit too subtle, though. I don't think that would work. I think that's like because then you're that is just a compliment. Yeah, yeah. It's like okay, saying yeah, but you would say oh, you would say, what like, it would be would be like if you said, "Look, I know, I know, girls with glasses are, are meant to be like ugly and people don't like them, but to be honest, I think you pull it off just about. It, that's yeah, the kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's anyway. That's one of many many psychological concepts in this book. I realized I was doing stuff like that. 
because I've just kind of grown to manipulate people and like I kind of do stuff like that. <laughs> but because you kind of you just do that and you find it works and so you, without really thinking about it in a kind of conscious way. I'm already making I'm making conscious efforts to stop myself doing that because I don't think it's a very nice thing to do. Um, <laughs> but then you know you still bring it out when it's needed. You know if it, if, mm. <laughs> if it gains you an advantage. But <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> it, it it really felt like. At this point in the film, Christian Grey was just your standard, like, pickup artist who's been working on getting it down to a science. Like, he even brings his freaking wingman along, his brother. Is it his brother? To get, yeah, to get rid of the, the flat. To, to distract the friend. That's, like, that's such a, <laughs> a classic, like, move. Wingman fair, distracts though, like, the mate so you can get her on your own. That is good wingman because he commits to that. I mean, they're still together at the end of the film, so... But that's like, what I mean. He, he really the fact that he was still it. there at the end was like, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> okay. You were supposed and again, to that, that to minutes. me suggested the <laughs> naivete of the uh, the author more than anything. But <laughs> do you ever put music on, Calvin? Uh, I used to at university quite a lot, but that was just because I was very conscious that you were in the next room. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just think the the possibility of like an um, just a hilarious song of yours coming on on shuffle <laughs> like Laurel and Hardy or something just popping on Oh god on. I've had that I've done that yeah where you put you just put it on shuffle and then some like fucking George Formby comes on <laughs> killed the mood isn't it Yeah I, I I did that once and uh Fiddler on the Roof came on and it became a challenge to persevere <laughs> You lo- you love a good playlist don't you Saul do you have a special sex playlist I don't, I don't, uh, I don't tend to put music on. Really, it's a bit, it's effort. Yeah, I mean, I know. I, I, I'd, I'd listen to you at university. God, I prayed for music. God. <laughs> did you? No, I think I might have heard you once. <laughs> I was say, did that was I, how many did times you did it? Right? <laughs> <laughs> there was definitely one time that it happened. I, I always put this podcast on when I'm having sex. Just really gets me going. <laughs> 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 all the, the dulcet tones of diminishing returns. Mm. Oh, well, I, I've heard Alan have sex. <laughs> That's like a, a rock, paper, scissors kind of thing. We've got oh, yeah, I was, right, I was right above your room, wasn't I? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was that good? Uh, it just woke me up. <laughs> Slap for fuck's sake. Was Alan loud or was the girl loud? Or the boy, whoever, yeah. Yeah, I don't make, I don't make a lot of noise. Uh, it, it, the girl. It didn't sound very sincere, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you, Saul, but it's more like, you know, you hear the bed going or whatever, rather than anything specific. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've gone too long, but yeah. That sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) (sighs) Classic sexual inadequacy jokes. And that's all we have for this week's episode of Outtakes. I hope you've enjoyed taking a look back at the sweepings from our cutting room floor. And do please feel free to join the discussion at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash diminishing returns podcast. And let us know what's on your sex music playlist. Imperial Death March, perhaps? And we'll be back to normal service next week, where we will discuss film and then pitch our own sequel idea, as always. Do please join us for that. And I'll just leave you with one more clip, in which we talk about the varied talents of Eddie Murphy. Now, we haven't done an episode about Eddie Murphy, so I'm not sure how we got onto this one, but 
that's probably why it got cut out of the episode in the first place. See you next week. Did the, did the makeup department for Norbit get an Oscar? <laughs> oh, I, 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 mean, I doubt it, but they might have been like nominated for something. More likely, like uh, the f- the f- what they call the flumps. <laughs> What's what they call it? Nutty <laughs> Professor. Nutty um, Professor Two. The flumps. <laughs> have you seen oh, any no. of Norbit? Oh wait, wait, wait! Yes. Norbit. I'm looking it up. Nominated for one Oscar. Uh, yeah, Rick, Rick Baker, Baker makeup, yeah. best what? makeup. Wow, God, go. Rick Baker going from werewolves to that. <laughs> it it was on the. I don't know if it still is, but it certainly was on Netflix. And I just as like a joke, I was sort of like, oh, I'm just gonna skip into like 20 minutes into this film and just see like see if we get three Eddie Murphys on screen or two Eddie Murphys <laughs> on screen to see what happens. <laughs> and then you know the pictures that come up on Netflix, like the that flash through the screen grabs. One flashed up of this like this old Chinese man, and I I just thought like oh my god was that no, and then it loaded up, and, and oh, yeah. sure enough it it was it was it was Eddie Murphy oh, yes, playing Mr Wong, <laughs> just being, oh, being like no. oh you're bratty kids you're bratty kids it's, it's like good, oh it? god like, like oh, this, wow this isn't uh, <laughs> this isn't quite um, yeah.